The following is a sermon from the Edgington Evangelical Presbyterian Church in Taylor Ridge, Illinois. Well, it's time now to open God's Word together. If you've not already done so, I'd like to invite you to open up uh, your copy of God's Word to Matthew in chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, you can find that on page 809 of a Bible in your pew rack if you need one. But I'd like to encourage you to open up because we'll be uh, flipping not just to Matthew 5, but to at least one other place as well. And you have a sermon outlined there in your bulletin as well to give you an idea of what we're looking at today. But uh, this is our third week in a new sermon series on the Sermon on the Mount, that great discourse early on in Matthew's Gospel where Jesus ascends up the Mount of Olives and sits down and opens his mouth and, and speaks and teaches words that have been stamped upon the conscience of humanity ever since. Deeply significant words. Uh, in the first week, we just did a, a general introduction to what Jesus is doing in the Sermon on the Mount. And last week, uh, we touched on the opening words of what these Beatitudes are. If you look in the text, uh, the heading above verse 2, chapter 5, verse 2 says, The Beatitudes. And they're called the Beatitudes because the first word in every one of these Beatitudes is blessed. And uh, Beatitude comes from the Latin verb Beatus. And that would be the Latin translation of every one of these words. Jesus is speaking of who is blessed in his kingdom. And that's why they're called the Beatitudes. Uh, but this week we, we begin to go down deep into each one of the Beatitudes. The, the plan is, Lord willing, that we will take one of these Beatitudes per week and then move onward through there and through the rest of the Sermon on the Mount. And so this week we are in just verse 3 this morning, Matthew chapter 5 and verse 3. Uh, just in preparation before we uh, pray and read God's word though, uh, sneak a peek up with your eyes to Matthew chapter 4 and verse 17. Jesus has come into the world and everybody in the world is accountable for answering the question, who is this man and what has he come to do and what has he come to say? And one of Jesus' opening public words in Matthew 4, 17 is, Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. And Jesus, in the subsequent chapters of the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, is teaching his people, this is what it means to live in my kingdom. This is what it means to be a follower of Jesus. This is what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. And that's relevant for everybody because if you claim the name of Jesus, then you want to know what it means to faithfully follow the, the one you claim. Or perhaps if you are someone who does not claim the name of Jesus, or perhaps used to and you're not sure, Jesus is saying, look, this is what my kingdom is all about. And every single one of us needs to know what it looks like to genuinely and truly follow Jesus because one of the things that we'll see today is that every single one of us stands in such desperate need of everything that Jesus promises to give us. And so we'll see that today. What does life look like inside of Jesus' kingdom? Because he is a king and his kingdom has come to this world and we must know what this means. And so let's pray and ask God's blessing upon his word, and then we will hear it together. Let's pray. Father, we bow now with your word open before us, thankful that we have a Bible, thankful that we have a Bible in a language that we can read and understand. And so we praise you for your word. We know, Lord, that you gave your word to us not to confuse us, 
and not to send us into disorder or chaos, but rather to reveal yourself to us that we might know most especially your son, Jesus. And so as he speaks to us here, we pray, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would come upon us and that it would illuminate our minds, that the Spirit of God would open our ears and give to our hearts ready and able soil to receive the seed of your word, that it might spring forth fruit to the glory of your name. And so, Lord, help us to understand what Jesus says here and then give us the obedience to apply it as well. So come now, Lord, and speak to us in the authority of your word, for we are ready to hear in Jesus' name. Amen. And now, dear friends, hear God's word from Matthew in chapter 5 and just the first three verses, the opening of the Beatitudes. This is the word of God. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth And taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Amen. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of God abides forever and ever. So I want to encourage you to keep your Bible open as we seek to understand what Jesus is saying to us here. Something that we must understand about Jesus' kingdom from the very, very beginning is that Jesus is coming to proclaim a kingdom that is absolutely upside down from the expectations of the people during that time of the kingdom that they thought that they wanted. Jesus is coming and declaring a word that runs absolutely countercultural to expectations and desires, both in his age and in ours as well. And we see that right away in the opening verse of the Sermon on the Mount of this section of the Beatitudes. As we glance at this first Beatitude in verse 3, we wonder, what is that? What is that all about? And one of the beautiful things about going deep with God's Word is that there is seemingly endless treasures to mine in God's Word as we seek to understand what is Jesus saying to us here and what does it mean and how does it matter to my life? Let us understand that Jesus is speaking about his kingdom that is contrary both to the first century and this present age because just like then, and perhaps maybe even more so today, you and I live in a world when the great message to individuals, the great encouragement, maybe even we could say uh, the great uh, message of the therapeutic uh, mind is to believe in yourself. Believe in yourself. And right away, the idea of poverty of spirit runs headlong into the notion of believing in yourself. Uh, We live in a world that uh, values proud selfishness and proud accomplishment, self-sufficiency, the self-made person, that, that virtue of the proverbial bootstraps by which we pull ourselves up. And in the world's wisdom, this beatitude should rather read, blessed is the strong, and blessed is the accomplished, and blessed is the one who is always right, and blessed is the one who is satisfied in themselves, and blessed is the one who is self-actualized, blessed is the one who is rich, blessed is the one who is trusting in himself. But in truth, who is really blessed? Jesus' kingdom tells us 
what it means to be genuinely and truly blessed. And last week we saw what it means when Jesus says you are blessed. It means you are covenantally favored and God looks upon you with delight and God embraces you into his presence. It makes sense that right away in Jesus' opening words, we should expect confrontation both to a secular wisdom, but here's an even greater point of contrast for us. We should be not surprised at all that this first beatitude flies in the face of secular wisdom, but the question is, is what about church people? How does Jesus' opening words in the beatitude challenge those of us, perhaps, who have known a church context for a very long time. What is Jesus saying here? And it's important to understand it because it gets so deeply to the heart of the truth of the gospel that you and I must believe, even if it's the gospel that we profess. What does this mean? How do we understand this? We're going to see it in two ways. We want to see, first of all, the position of the poor, and then secondly, the possession of the poor as well. So the position and the possession, possession, you'll see that on your outline as well. So let's see again, when Jesus first opened his mouth in Matthew 5, verse 2, it says he opened his mouth and he taught them, that is the disciples that had gathered together, uh, and you can see that he's speaking to the disciples because at the end of verse 1 it says, when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and verse 2, he opened his mouth and taught them, and the them is his disciples, And here's what he has to say again, verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. I wonder why this is the first beatitude. Among the others, this one is good and the others are, are important as well. But why do you think this is the first one? Uh, let us remember what I pointed out last week, that if you look at verse 3 in relationship to verse 10, the beginning and the end of the Beatitudes, you'll notice that Jesus structures his teaching in what we call, uh, in Hebrew, it's called an inclusio or an inclusion or a bookmark. Uh, verse 3 and verse 10 promise the same blessing when it says at the end of verse 3, end of verse 10, theirs is the kingdom. And he is saying, this is the theme of what I'm saying in the Beatitudes of who possesses the kingdom, who is the citizen of the kingdom, and what it looks like to live in this kingdom. Who does it belong to? Who is blessed? And he begins right away in verse 3 to speak about those who are poor in their spirit. And this Beatitude, being that it's the first, and introduces the essential theme of the whole of the Beatitudes, it must mean that Verse 3 is the key to understanding everything that follows it. And there is a logical sequence to the Beatitudes here. And there is no one in the kingdom, Jesus would say. There is nobody in the kingdom who is not poor in spirit. And so we, we pointed out before that the Beatitudes are not a list by which you can say, I like this one, but not that one. I like meekness, but I don't like being poor in spirit. No, Jesus is saying this is an all-encompassing description of those who are genuinely in my kingdom. So first of all, poor in spirit. You know, that's not really something that we say. That's not a description that we would use. Even if we were going to speak well of someone, you would not praise someone most likely today by saying, oh, you know, I know such and such a person. They're great. They're so poor in spirit, right? That's That's not really something that is on our vernacular in any any way whatsoever. So we have to understand, what does it mean? What does it mean to be poor in spirit? We first of all want to kind of distinguish what what it does not mean necessarily. 
So before we understand the full scope of what it means to be poor in spirit, we just first have to understand what it means when Jesus says poor, right? Because when you read the word poor or think about the word poor, I imagine what comes into your mind are images and circumstances relative to life that are all with reference to economics. Whether means or no means, economic means. And the Bible does speak about being poor this way, of course. The Bible speaks of poverty But there are different words the Bible uses to speak of being poor. And the way you and I probably think of poor is actually not the way Jesus uses the word poor here. But if you want an example, there are other examples in the Bible speaking of the word poor. Now I put on your outline there and and don't stumble over the transliteration of the Greek. But the two words are patokos and panikros. They both can be translated as poor but they have a different emphasis. Now, again, usually when you and I think of poor, we think about economy, and that would be the way Jesus uses the word poor, for example, of the poor widow in Luke 21. Do you remember her? She brought uh, a small offering to the temple, and the Lord indicated that she was poor, but she was blessed because she gave what she have, uh, what she had, not out of her riches, but out of her poverty. And when she is identified as being poor, it is the word Patokos, or sorry, panikros, meaning poor, meaning financially poor. Ordinary poverty, meaning meager resources. But that financial sense is not necessarily the way Jesus uses it here in verse 3. Jesus is not saying that you are necessarily blessed in God's kingdom if you are materially poor. Now, if he was, then that would mean that the goal of the Christian life were to be as poor as possible and whoever had the least amount of money would be the most blessed person. That's, that's not what Jesus is saying, although in other parts of the New Testament, it certainly talks about the fact that wealth is oftentimes an obstacle to spiritual understanding, but both for the poor person and the rich person, money can be equally an idol. But Jesus is not saying material poverty here. Jesus is talking about the condition of the spirit rather than the wallet. And we want to see that here in verse 3, because when Jesus says, blessed are the poor, the word that's used here is patokos, meaning to shrink or to cower or to cringe. It doesn't so much describe the, the, the state of one's bank account as it does describe their disposition about themselves. In that sense, this word was used to describe beggars who were timidly crouching down and bowing down to beg for alms. Uh, The word poor used here in verse 3 is a picture of utter and total destitution. And if you want to imagine it, it would be uh, as uh, of such cowering with shame that as I lowly bend down to extend my hand to beg with the other hand I cover my face in shame because I don't want you to look upon me that's what Jesus means in the word poor here utter and total destitution not just limited economic means but no means whatsoever not just poor but poor in spirit Referring to the non-material parts of ourselves, our emotions, our feelings, our thoughts. Jesus is here concerned about our attitude toward ourselves. 
To be poor in spirit means to be destitute of comfort. Not only outwardly with regard to material comfort, but also to be destitute of inward comfort. To be poor in spirit is to recognize a spiritual bankruptcy before God. If I am poor in spirit, I realize that I come before God and I turn out my pockets and there's nothing in them. It is to see ourselves, poor in spirit is to see myself as lost and hopeless and helpless with nothing to offer, nothing to plead, nothing to use to bargain with God. Lord, I know I need you, but I've got this to give you if you'll give me forgiveness. No, to be poor in spirit is to be utter destitution when I spiritually see and am brought to a sense that seeing my sins makes me realize that I have no goodness in myself and I despair in myself and cast myself upon God's mercy with an outstretched and empty hand with the other hand covering my face in shame. Lord, don't look upon me except to be merciful. That's the picture. And apart from Jesus Christ, Everyone is this picture of spiritual destitution, no matter your education, no matter the amount of your financial accounts, no matter your social accomplishments or religious knowledge. All people, just in themselves, stand before God in this place of spiritual destitution. And oftentimes we can mistake the fact because we don't believe that we are. And in fact, the church in Laodicea in the book of Revelation was guilty of not believing that. Jesus says to them, you say I'm rich and you say I've prospered and you say you don't need anything. Not realizing that you are actually wretched and pitiable and poor and blind and naked. Poor in spirit. So what does this look like? What does it look like? I want you to keep your finger in in Matthew 5, but go to Luke 18. Go to Luke 18 where Jesus tells a very important parable that provides perhaps the best illustration of this that we can constantly give. You know, oftentimes in preaching, everyone tells you, you know, illustration, 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 and uh, draw from your own life and all the rest, but the best place to draw from is the Bible itself. Let the Bible explain the Bible. And in Luke 18, Jesus tells a parable of one who is poor in spirit. In Luke 18, beginning at verse 9, it's under the heading, the Pharisee and the tax collector. Jesus reads these, speaks these words. In verse 9, we read that he also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Jesus says to the shock of the the hearers, verse 14, I tell you, this man, speaking of the tax collector, went down to his house justified rather than the other. 
For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. And the fundamental point that Jesus is making there is where are you looking to say where you stand before God. And the Pharisee is looking at himself and saying, look at my accomplishments, look at my spiritual resume, I've done all these things. And the tax collector is, to use the same sense from the Beatitude, poor in spirit, standing far off and saying, Lord, be merciful to me. Not claiming something within himself, but just claiming mercy. Now, there's much more that we can say about that, of course, but that is, that is the picture of being poor in spirit here. It's, it's similar to that hymn that we sometimes sing, Rock of Ages, isn't it? Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress, helpless look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly, wash me, Savior, or I die. Nothing in my hands. Does that, does that make sense to you, for example, when we, in the context of the Lord's Day, take time to confess our sins? You're not at that moment bargaining with God, are you? Lord, I know I did this, but do you remember that I also did these things? Or perhaps when we distribute the bread and the cup and we, we have the emblems of our Savior's dying love for us, are you, are you saying, Lord... It makes sense that you would die for someone so great as me. Not looking within. The way, the way Calvin says it like this is that he only who is reduced to nothing in himself and relies only on the mercy of God is poor in spirit. So the question that we should ask is, are we, are we convinced that that is necessary? Because uh, trying to to enter into the Beatitudes, not just for our own sake, but also for the sake of those that we interact with that would maybe question this. No, poverty of spirit is not a virtue. And I'm not even convinced that I am poor in spirit because I've got a lot going for me. But, but what is man before a holy God? If you're not utterly convinced of this, or perhaps you're concerned that somebody that you love is not utterly convinced of this, listen to what Calvin goes on to say. Let us imagine for ourselves that heavenly judge, not as our minds naturally imagine him, but as he is depicted for us in the scriptures, by whose brightness the stars are darkened, by whose strength the mountains are melted, by whose wrath the earth is shaken, who catches the wise in their craftiness, behind whose purity all things are defiled, whose righteousness not even the angels can bear. Let us behold him sitting in judgment to examine the deeds of men. What does it mean to stand before God? Who will stand before that throne confident in himself? Who can dwell with that all-consuming fire? Then, in an instant, the vain confidence of men perishes and falls, and conscience is compelled to confess that I have nothing within myself with which I can rely on before God. Are you looking to something within yourself to qualify you before God. The Lord Jesus in this opening beatitude wants to establish this essential truth of his kingdom. And if this first one isn't in order, none of the rest are going to make sense. If we don't understand the importance of poverty of spirit, then we won't go on to mourn, we won't go on to be meek, and we certainly won't go on to hunger and thirst for righteousness if we're convinced that we already have it within ourselves. But Jesus says, 
The one to whom God will look upon with blessing is the one who is poor in spirit. This is what it means to be a true citizen, to have this posture. And the prophet Isaiah speaks God's word saying, the one who is humble and contrite in spirit, that's the one that God looks upon. That means that in God's kingdom, every single citizen is a citizen not by merit, but by sovereign grace, gratuitous mercy and kindness. So how can you, how can you tell that you are poor in spirit? Right? We, should, we should want to know that because Jesus is saying, here's what it looks like to live in my kingdom. And if I, if I am a Christian believer, I want my life to reflect citizenship in Christ's kingdom. How can you tell if you are poor in spirit? Well, quickly, here's three things. First of all, if you are poor in spirit, then you are not offended when the Bible calls you a sinner. You are not offended when you are confronted with the fact that you are a sinner. In fact, uh, maturing gospel faith helps us to answer this question. Who is the worst sinner that I know? I answer that question by looking in the mirror. Maturing Christian faith answers the question that the worst sinner I know is me. Like the Apostle Paul, you feel that you are the chief of sinners. Secondly, you are keenly aware of your own spiritual inadequacy. Meaning you're not trying to put on an appearance of righteousness for other people's sake. You don't want other people to think of you as righteous and then are unconcerned about who you are before God in private. You have instead prioritized who you are before God rather than what other people think of you. You don't try to measure yourself against other people's performance so that you can say, well, I'm not as bad as. You instead say, who am I before God? And third, you place a high value on the mercy of God You cherish the gospel because you know that you can't live without it. You cherish God's mercy because you know that you desperately need it. You boast in Christ because you know every good thing in your life is because of him. That's what it means. That's what it looks like or even begins to look like to be poor in spirit. So that is the the position of the poor in spirit. But then secondly... Jesus goes on to say in verse 3, let's see the possession of the poor. He says, you are blessed, you are covenantally favored, that God looks upon you with kindness, and he sets his face toward you. Blessed are the poor in spirit. What do we have? Theirs is the kingdom. For theirs is the kingdom. God's salvation is a gift that is absolutely free and utterly undeserved. And the benefit of that kingdom comes when we realize all of that truth. When we understand that we are in that kingdom totally by grace, the benefits of that kingdom are said to be truly ours. Meaning, what Jesus is saying here is not to preach a message to you that is intended to produce self-loathing and, oh, I'm the worst person I know with regard to outward appearance or a sense of false humility. Jesus is not interested in false humility. He's not interested in self-loathing. He's not interested in depressing you. That's not what he's trying to do here. Because Jesus says, you are blessed when you are poor in spirit because the kingdom belongs to you. And so this beatitude doesn't crush you in the kingdom. It levels your pride, but then lifts you up when you abandon that pride. 
It lifts you up and it strengthens you. And that's why Jesus' kingdom is so counterintuitive. And listen very carefully to this. It is because only when we realize what we don't have within ourselves will we realize what we could have in Jesus Christ, what is available to all. The promise of the kingdom is this promise of blessing that those who come to the Lord with empty hands and broken hearts don't leave with empty hands and broken hearts. As Isaiah 57, 15 says, I dwell in the high and holy place and also with him who is contrite and lowly spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. And so what does the gospel say to you when you realize the weight of your sin? It doesn't say, oh, don't worry about that. It's no big deal. No, the gospel says sin is a a horrible thing. And yet the Savior has taken it away to give you his righteousness so that when you come empty, you leave filled, filled with blessing. He raises us up. As James 4.10 says, humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord and he will exalt you. Because when you give up your own kingdom, you will inherit God's kingdom. That means that we turn to Christ empty in order to be filled. We come to him sick that we may be healed. We come hungry that he may satisfy us. We come thirsty so that he'll refresh us. We come needy so that we'll be enriched, guilty to be pardoned, defiled to be cleansed, dying so that we will have life, and lost so that we will be saved. And it is amazing that right when we pronounce that we in ourselves are absolutely bereft of any claim upon God, that God blesses us with his kingdom. Blessed are the poor, for theirs is the kingdom. That the moment you acknowledge the poverty of your own soul is the same moment you are bathed in the infinite mercies of the Almighty God. We don't deserve it, and that's when we're told it belongs to us. Jesus is here speaking this very confrontational and hard word, but it's an encouraging word. It's an encouraging word that when we look upon ourselves and see our inadequacies, we then realize that we look upon Jesus and we have everything that we need in him. And the blessing of God comes upon those who know that they are poor in spirit. So again, people of God, Jesus calls you as a citizen of his kingdom cultivate this reality in your life to cultivate the poverty of your spirit so that you might not boast in yourself but in him and his mercy and if you're doing that and lord willing the spirit of god helps us to do this but what does it produce in us who will you be becoming in pursuit of jesus and recognizing the poverty of your spirit Well, you will be becoming a a humble person, right? Humility is a virtue that even secular wisdom honors in one sense, but it's a really chief virtue of the scriptures, isn't it? And there are some people who suggest that what Jesus is saying when he says be poor in spirit, it means to be humble, but it doesn't mean the same thing. Humility, that great Christian virtue, 
Humility is the fruit of being poor in spirit. Meaning that being near to Jesus and aware of his gospel truth and the poverty of your spirit is the soil that produces humility in your life. Where does humility come from? It comes from proximity and nearness to Jesus and awareness of his gospel. It's not false humility. It's not self-loathing. But true gospel humility is not to think less of yourself. It's just to think of yourself less. Get over it. And get your eyes upon Jesus because we have set our eyes upon him. Now, loved ones, the opening word of the whole Sermon on the Mount is so significant. You can only imagine what the rest of it contains. But by God's grace and with the Spirit, he enables us to pursue this. And so, people of God, let us pursue. Let us embrace what the gospel says to us that we might receive all the gospel promises to us as well. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your word and the truth that it teaches us. And we ask, Lord, that we might understand even a little bit more. We pray for any and all here today who remain unconvinced of your truth, that you by your spirit might awaken them to the truth of the gospel. And so, Lord, for all of our sakes, we pray that we might grow. Help us to be near to Jesus and help us to see him as infinitely worthy that we might abandon all hope in ourselves and trust in his grace. For we pray in his matchless name. Amen. Thank you for listening to today's sermon. If you would like more information about our church or its ministries, please visit edgingtonepc.org. May God bless and keep you.